John chapter 3. Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We do this every once in a while. If you're at some place where someone of honor walks past you, what do you do? If the president walks in the room, people stand. When the bride enters the, the wedding, you stand. And so sometimes we stand to remind ourselves that the word of God is worthy of honor. And so hear God's word this morning. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. You know, sometimes the preacher... The preacher needs the gospel too. And sometimes the preacher knows he needs it the least. We're talking about encounters with Jesus. What happens when the religious insider, when the religious leader runs into Jesus and encounters the real Jesus? We we are looking at various people as they encounter Jesus in this series, and this morning we come to a guy named Nicodemus. Let me give you a little bit about who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus comes to Jesus here at night. Now, a lot of commentators and preachers have been pretty hard on Nicodemus, but he's a fearful man. He's skulking around in the dark so he can have a conversation with Jesus, and that may be true. That might be true, but let's give Nicodemus some credit. Here's what we can know for sure. Nicodemus is an intellectually curious man. If you look at Jesus' interactions with the other Pharisees, they are not very open-minded. Nicodemus is. The other Pharisees tend to be downright antagonistic towards Jesus. Nicodemus comes with not animosity, but actually coming, hoping seemingly to have an honest conversation with Jesus. In verse 2, he even ascribes a special honor to Jesus. He calls him rabbi. A rabbi is a technical uh, description of one who has been through the training of a teacher, and yet he knows Jesus hasn't received that training, and therefore the way Jesus is able to speak is that he must have a special uh, anointing from God. And so he pays Jesus a compliment. Nicodemus is a good man. He's a pillar of the community. He is widely respected and a highly regarded religious ruler. Even throughout this, this scenario, he never gets snarky with Jesus. He seems even downright kind. 
So this is an encounter between the religious good man and Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to Nicodemus when he comes in verse 2 and gives Jesus, pays Jesus a compliment and says, Oh, Rabbi, you must be from God because we see all the signs and the wonders that you do. Well, how does Jesus respond? With a baffling non sequitur. Jesus, you're a great teacher. You must be from God. Jesus turns to him and says, you must be born again. Huh? He, Nicodemus spends the rest and actually the entirety of this conversation confused. He comes as a man completely confident and curious, but he walks away seemingly and utterly baffled. Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus's response is to say, wait, what? Huh? What are we talking about all of a sudden? Nicodemus marvels at what Jesus is saying. And we know he is marveling at what Jesus is saying because in verse 7, Jesus says to him, do not marvel at what I am saying. And then the last thing we see, the last time we hear anything from Nicodemus, he says, well, how can these things be? He comes curious and he walks away, frankly, disoriented. What's going on here? Why is Jesus engaging with Nicodemus in this way? Well, let me ask you this. How do you get someone's attention who already believes that they already have all the answers? How do you get someone's attention who is blind and leading the other blind, but doesn't believe that they are blind? You might have to smack them across the face. How do you get someone to listen to you who has heard all the sermons? And in this case, how do you get someone to listen to you when they have written all the sermons? What is Jesus' approach? He takes a man who is eminently confident in his knowledge of God and the things of God, and he utterly disorients Nicodemus with this conversation. He speaks to Nicodemus in such a way that Nicodemus' entire worldview is shaken. Nicodemus has his spiritual and theological equilibrium turned upside down. You know what I'm talking about when I think of, when you use the word equilibrium? Any of you ridden a roller coaster over the age of 35? (laughs) Roller coasters that you rode when you were 18 years old and you could ride it over and over and over again, you get on one of those bad boys at 37 years of age and you're going, I look green. I feel green. Everything in me feels like it is being flipped upside down. Even these days, I'll go out to the playground with my children and I get on a swing set and if I get just a little bit too aggressive... My tummy starts to go up and down, and I go, what in the world? What is being disrupted? My equilibrium is being disrupted. And that is what happens to Nicodemus today. Nicodemus comes in curiosity to Jesus, but he encounters the real Jesus, and he is completely knocked off his bearings. He is stung in the face. He gets his bell rung so that he is utterly disoriented. What does Jesus say that disorients Nicodemus? I'm going to say, look at three things, because there's three truly trulys here. Three truly trulys means this is a worthy statement to be accepted. The first is this, that Jesus disorients him by showing Nicodemus the depth of his need. In verse 3, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was this world that was the Jewish understanding that when God was going to come and make everything right in this world, this is the renewal of all things. And he says, in order to not just be there, but to even see it, you have to be born again. Now, really quickly, because this term, born again, 
especially if you're maybe my age or older, comes with a lot of baggage culturally. Born again in our broader culture generally means that someone is needful, so needful of God's work in their life because they are a down and outer. Someone who is a convict or a drug addict, that's who needs to be born again. The guys in jail, those are the people who need to be born again. And born again comes with this idea of a highly emotive experience that you suddenly find yourself like the guy from Brother or Art Thou jumping down in the river and go, I came up out of the water and I've been saved. That's the kind of the idea that we have. Something that is, that is found amongst the less educated, the rule, you know, the deplorables. Someone who doesn't process life intellectually but emotionally. To be born again is not for the good people, it's for the certain types, like the addicts. And so they need to go to AA and talk about a higher power, and they, because they need a higher power. But if your life is put together, you get to be just a run-of-the-mill, happy-go-lucky evangelical. You don't have to mess with that born-again stuff, because that is, that is uncool. But Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says to him, you must be born again. Now, does Nicodemus fit the categories the judge just talked about that we culturally have this idea of being born again? No. Nicodemus is quite the contrary. Nicodemus is most likely wealthy. He is morally upright. He was a ruler. He is intellectual. He is successful. He is highly respected. He, is, he has everything about his life is in order. And Jesus says, you too, you too must be born again. To be born again, understand this is a metaphor. It is saying that you need your life a new life entirely. We talk about being born as being physical, but he's saying that you need a spiritual being reborn by God's spirit. And what becomes clear in this story and what he is saying to Nicodemus and what is the stunner here is that you too, Nicodemus, need to be born again. Jesus is talking to a man who already believes he is one of God's people, who already believes that he has entrance into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is challenging him, saying, just because you've been part of the church and part of God's people all of your life, just because you're one of the preachers, doesn't mean you have been made new. No matter how good and decent you are, you must be born again. No matter how rotten you are, you can be born again. Do you realize that what Jesus is saying he's here is that all of society's losers and all of society's winners, the immorally fallen and the morally upright, they need to be born again. And not only is it a matter that everyone needs to be born again, but see the, the stunning nature of Jesus' metaphor here to, to Nicodemus. To be born again is not a call to be more moral and religious because Nicodemus is already those things to the hilt. To be born again is not a call to more of man's self-righteous religion, but it is actually a challenge to man's religion. It's a smack in the face. Jesus is saying that not only the most radical change imaginable gets you entrance into the kingdom of heaven, and that is for you to be spiritually made new. Only the most radical change only that most core change. Being born again is not a matter of doing some moral nipping and tucking in our lives. To be born again means that you need a new DNA and a new heart. A new DNA. I was a really good basketball player when I was young. Like, really good. But I was a big fish in a small pond. And what happens as you get older, as some of you are experiencing and have experienced in life, is you, as you move up in grade, you move into a bigger pond. And when I was 13 or 14 years ago, I started playing travel basketball, what they call AAU. 
And this was an enormous shift for me because I was used to playing with other people who played below the rim. And suddenly, at 13 and 14 years old, I was playing with the best players in the state, and guess what happened? The game went up a level, literally, above the rim. And I began to realize it doesn't matter how many dribbling drills I do or how many shots I take in the driveway. I need something more than practice can give me. I need new genetics. (laughs) Desperately. And I was not getting new genetics. They were not coming around the corner. And this is what you have to begin to understand about yourself spiritually. You cannot practice your way into new life. It is this deep of a need that you need a new heart, a new DNA, a new genetics. Do you see how stunning and disorienting this would have been to Nicodemus? I have the DNA. I'm a good Israelite. And not only that, I'm not even just a good Israelite. I'm the best Israelite. Here's a reasonable kind of standing man of moral rectitude and societal position, and he comes to Jesus, teacher to teacher, and Jesus stuns him and punches him right in the face with this challenge. Nicodemus, you don't need moral nips and tucks, but you need radical new birth at the core of your being. And what's Nicodemus' response? (laughs) Well, I'm going to give you this gif. I love gifs. I think they're hysterical. We're going to call this the Nicodemus face. That's Jeff Goldblum. I also love Jeff Goldblum, so just kind of go along with me because I think his face is imminently hysterical. And so this is my imagination as to how Nicodemus must have faced in this moment. What? What are we talking about? And Nicodemus asks a question. Um, Okay, listen, Jesus. I don't know how we got on the topic of being born or what this born again thing is, but I'll go along. So let's say I, let's say I do need to be born again. Um, I'm gonna take, I'm, you're an eminent teacher, so I'm gonna take you, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give you your credit. So how, how, do I, how do I go back into my mother's womb? I'm a grown man. It was a tough birth to begin with. I've got a large head. It's, it's not gonna go well. It's not gonna go well a second time. And Jesus responds, okay, let me say this again. Let me rephrase, he says. In case you didn't get it the first time, Let me say it again. He moves on in verse four. Unless one is born again, I'm sorry, verse five, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here Jesus doubles down on his disorientation to Nicodemus. He punches him with a jab on the first one, and now he brings the roundhouse. He's spoken of the need that everyone, including Nicodemus, desperately has a new birth, a new DNA. And now he says not only that, If you need a new birth and a new salvation and a new ability to enter the kingdom of God, that is only going to come to you, only going to come to you by the grace of God. And so he's disorienting Nicodemus by saying, here's the deal. You are utterly, you are utterly dependent on God and his grace. He says in verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To be born again means God comes to make us alive again. And how does that happen? Jesus says in this verse, it happens by water and spirit. Now, real briefly, commentators over the, uh, the history of the church have debated as to what Jesus means. What is this thing, water and spirit? And some say, well, what that means is the water refers to, they get really graphic, is the water of the amniotic fluid, and so you have to have a natural birth, and then you need the spiritual birth. 
That's not what it means. And then other people have said, okay, well, it's water and spirit. And so what that refers to is the outer baptism. When you need the water uh, of baptism, you need to go down to the Jordan River. You need the water poured on your head. And then you also need the internal spiritual baptism. This is where often some people in some denominations and cults get the idea that you are actually saved by being, having physical water baptism. But that is not what he's talking about. Jesus is talking to, uh, to an eminent scholar of the Old Testament who knows his Old Testament backwards and forwards. And what it refers to is a passage that we read this morning in our service, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 37, 27, which says this, I will sprinkle you with clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and to be careful to obey my rules. So what does he say? He combines water and spirit here in this passage. That's what Jesus is referring back to here. This is what he's saying that, that, that um, Nicodemus needs. I will sprinkle you with clean water. means he is cleansed. He is washed. has his sins washed away. I will put a new spirit in you, which means new desires to love the Lord, to obey the Lord. And God says, I'm going to give you a new internal operating system that is clean and that comes with new desires, a desire that is geared towards me. That is why he's saying water and spirit. And this being born again, this cleansing and being made new must be a rebirth by the Spirit of God. That, the Spirit of God is the one who must give birth here. That's what it says in verse 8. And then he describes the movement and the work of the Spirit of God in verse 8 in this way as this metaphor. He says, the Spirit is like the wind that blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He says, the Spirit is like the wind. You know it's there, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. You can't create it. You can't conjure it up. We don't know where it comes from. We can't control it, but we know the wind is real by its effects. We can feel it cooling our face. We can see it blowing the trees. We can feel it tattering our hair, and so it is with the Spirit of God. You cannot control him. You cannot manipulate him. We are completely power, uh, uh, dependent on a power outside of us to come blow fresh into our life to change us. We are utterly dependent on the Spirit of God to do this cleansing and new life-giving work. So how are you born again? Do you birth yourself? By the grace of God, what he's saying here is the Holy Spirit blows upon you and gives birth to you. There's a reason why he's using this metaphor of birth. Did you have anything to do with your first birth? You are not in heaven raising your hand, ooh, me, pick me, I want that one, that couple there. You did nothing, you participated not at all in your first birth. They didn't even ask you if you wanted to come out, which is why when you came out, you were really ticked, right? You came out kicking and screaming, and so it is with our second birth. That you are dependent. You didn't make a choice. He made it. It is all of grace. He makes the first and decisive move. But this kind of grace is very, very unsettling for us. Because this is hard because we like it to be about what we have done. 
There was an older man who went into the pastor's office. The pastor had been preaching about grace a lot, and this old man had had it. You see, this man was a patriot. He had fought in World War II. He had killed Nazis. He had lived a successful and upstanding life, and he came into the pastor's office very frustrated, and he said, enough of this talk about grace. I was taught growing up that you get to heaven is you keep the Ten Commandments. Whatever happened to going to heaven the old-fashioned way? And the pastor said, I know. I understand the frustration. I understand what it's like. You see, he said, I, I had older brothers and sisters, and I was the youngest, and whenever we would play board games and I started to win, they would just flip the boards upside down. And that's what it feels like God is doing to you right now. You thought you were playing one game, and he just came and said, wait a second, that's not the game we're playing. You were way ahead, you thought, in that game. But in this game, I flipped the tables Christian, the Christian stakes his whole life not on his abilities, but upon the life and death of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit to change you. That we can be more loved and valued and accepted by God than we could ever dare imagine. And you don't make that happen. You don't make that change happen. He does. There's a great hymn that we've sung at various times here. It says this, one of the lines, Come ye sinners, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him, and that he gives you. That he gives you, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the new birth. When you realize, I need him I am desperate for him. I can do nothing without him. I cannot cling to him unless he clings to me first. And here's what this means. And this is a word of encouragement for you. For those of you that have been the religious insiders for a long time, and perhaps you need to rediscover this, that if you are someone who believes today, you are a miracle of God. St. Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, he was not given to hyperbole, but he said this, the recreation of one human heart is a greater miracle than the original creation of the entire universe out of nothing. Because you know what? Creation didn't fight him hook, line, and sinker all the way. And you did. A miracle is a suspension or an overriding of the natural order of things. Our natural state in our first birth is to live by the flesh. I will live by the flesh. I will die by the flesh. I will seek to save myself by the flesh. And Jesus comes in and says, no, I'm going to override that natural fleshliness in you. And I'm going to give you a new heart. That is a miracle by its very definition. If you believe in God, if you're a miracle, and if you knew that, if you knew that you were that miracle, then you would actually treasure the very eye drop, the little eye drop of faith that you have been given. That faith that connects you to God. And further implication of this is also, <laughs> it means you're completely dependent you didn't save you. You need God, and you need God to make the first and decisive move. And if we understand that, not only would we be unbelievably encouraged, but we would also be unbelievably humble, wouldn't we? That we look around the world around us and we go, oh, these people who deny the existence of God, oh, those, those people, as such were you, but by the grace of God who intervened in your life. And so we return to Nicodemus. This is Jesus' response to Nicodemus. He goes, okay, how do I crawl back into my mom's womb? He, Jesus goes, no, 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 let me explain again. It's all of grace. You're not doing anything here. Now let's check back in with Nic Nicodemus. How's he doing? 
Well, let's go back to the Goldblum face. This is Nicodemus, and he says, how can these things be? There he is. You starting to feel it? It's like that. I've, it took me five days to pick the right GIF. This is it. <laughs> Amazing amount of study just to come up with this all week, searching in my phone, my test messaging. Yeah, how can we be the recipients of new life? Certainly there's something you're supposed to do. I mean, how does this happen, he says. If I don't do anything, if this is just of the Spirit blowing a fresh wind into my life and making things new, how in the world can this happen? I mean, Jesus, yes, okay, I'm a sinner. I know I have to do these sacrifices. I'm sinful. I, I, I need something. But I, how, how can you make this happen? How is this going to happen that you're going to make, make me new? Now, Jesus he responds in verses 12 and 13 with some very confusing words that I'm not actually going to explain. Because there is no consistency amongst the commentators regarding what Jesus talks about here when he talks about his, his testimony being heard and accepted. But here's what is clear, is verses 14 and 15. Because Jesus says to the question, how can these things be? He responds like this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And here's what I want you to see what Jesus is telling him. How, he, Jesus answers the question, how can these things be? How can grace be poured out in this way, in such a way that it brings new life within me, a new birth within me? And Jesus points back, oddly enough, to a story from the Old Testament. And he is telling, he's disorienting Nicodemus one final time. And he's saying, I'm going to disorient you by relocating or redirecting your belief. Verse 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up for the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is pointing back here to a fairly strange uh, uh, story from the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21, when Israel is still in the midst of their 40 years of wilderness wandering, and Israel is doing what Israel does best, which is, kids, grumbling and complaining they are hacked off at God again. And so because they're ticked, God eventually decides, I'm going to put it, I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to bring judgment into their midst. And he brings into their midst a plague of poisonous snakes, of vipers, who begin to bite people. This is the stuff that nightmares are made of. And they begin to bite people, and people die rather rapidly, foaming at the mouth from the poison in their system. And this is meant to bring death in their life and judgment because of their sin. And the people of God, rather swiftly, though, begin to cry out in repentance and asking for the Lord's mercy. And so God told Moses to do a very strange thing. He said, take a bronze serpent, form a bronze serpent, and put it on a pole. And anyone who will look at the bronze serpent, even if they have been bitten, if they would look to the bronze serpent, they will be healed. And all who looked on this object of death, even though they had been fatally bitten, they would live. Now, this story used to confuse me. Um, as a kid, because you're going like, I was a, a church kid, so I knew Jesus likes to be lions or lambs. Those are the animals. He's not a serpent. The serpent is the devil. And this is, this is, this is point, Jesus says, I'm like the serpent. I'm the one who's going to get lifted up. Why is he not a lamb? Here's why he's not a lamb. Because what are they looking at? They're looking at the object of God's wrath upon their life. And Moses is saying, this is what it's going to take for your death to be dealt with. For the judgment that you deserve to be dealt with, you have to look 
look at the curse that is supposed to come upon you. They had to see that God would would bring a curse upon their sin and put that curse of death upon their life. So that's what he's pointing to in the first part of 14. Then he says this in the second half. In the same way, so Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and so must the son of God be lifted up. What's he saying here? That the curse had to be put up. It had to be put up. The curse had to be put to death. The curse, the wrath of our sin, the poison of our sin had to be dealt with in some way. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, I will come and I will take the curse upon myself and I will climb upon the pole. I will climb upon the pole. I will climb the tree. We had sinned. And our sin, it is saying, is no small thing. It is worthy of death. A viperous death, the curse of death struck Jesus, though, instead of us, so that we might be healed of the poison of our sin that resides within. No one is born again. No one is born again without pain and suffering and death, but it will not be yours. It is his. Right? Think about your natural birth. All natural birth, well, before they created things called epidurals, was painful. And think about this, this image 2,000 years ago. No painkillers. The best you could do is maybe find some wine that wasn't very good. That's the best you could do. Think about how painful birth is and the suffering there. And think about the mortality rate. Many people in that society who's hearing this, who would have heard this and read this, they came to life because their mother died giving them life. And so what is, John, what is Jesus saying? He's saying in order for you to be born and to be born again, how does this happen? The Son of Man must die. The Son of Man must take your suffering and take your wrath and take your curse and he must bring it upon himself. And then it says this in verse 15. He does this so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes, in Numbers 21, Moses tells the people that all they had to do to to live in order to be healed was to look. Look and live. Look and live. That was the statement Moses made. And here's this last bit of disequilibrium for Nicodemus. How can these things be? By the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and how can Nicodemus receive the healing of the sacrifice of Christ? What must he do? Not much. Just cast your eyes up. Look and live. Look and live. What is he saying here? Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Look nowhere else but to the cross. A.W. Tozer said this, faith. Faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. That is the essence of faith. That you do nothing but place your need upon him. Jesus, isn't there something we do? Nope, you just look to him. Jesus, shouldn't I rub out my terrible spots or clean myself up? Nope, you look to him. Jesus, do I need to rub a crucifix 10 times a day or do some other practice? Nope, you look to him. Jesus, there must be something I do. Nope, you look up. The call is to look in faith and trust as a dying man unable to drag himself even to the cross of Jesus. You just look. And perhaps the simplicity of this is not even the correct word, but smallness of such a faith. Such a small thing. 
The weakness, the silliness almost of faith is evidenced here. Just look at it. It's so lovely because it's ridiculous to think if all I have to do is look at something and I am saved. And here's the critical clarification about this sheer smallness of our faith, of merely looking. Your faith is not in your faith. Your faith is in the object of your faith. Faith is a glass window at the front of your car through which you look to the object where you're going. Because our faith, your faith is probably like mine. And here's how Flannery O'Connor described my faith. She says, our faith rises and falls like the tides of the ocean. My faith is powerful one day. I'm like Paul with my cape flapping up on the mountaintop. And the next day, I'm down in the depths of despair. Actually, that might happen in one afternoon. Because my faith rises. C.S. Lewis calls it the law of undulation, like waves, up and down. But let's be so grateful that our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is what our faith clings to, or in this case, looks to. A.W. Tozer, this isn't up there. I put it in too late. Faith is the least regarding of of all virtues, at least self-regarding. It is by its very nature scarcely conscious of its own existence, like the eye which sees everything in front of it and never sees itself. Faith is occupied with the object upon which it rests and pays no attention to itself at all. While we are looking at God, we do not see ourselves blessed riddance. The man who has struggled to purify himself and has had nothing but refeated failures will experience real relief when he stops tinkering with his soul and looks to the perfect one. Oh, religious insiders, are you so weary of trying to change yourself by your own ability? The disorientation of the Christian life says, look, look to him. Don't put much faith in your faith. Now, here's what I might mean by that practically. In your daily life, sometimes when it comes to our relationship with God, we become fairly nasal gazers. We scrutinize ourselves to death. We are constantly taking our spiritual pulse. Oh, how am I I doing? How am I I feeling today? We are so self-absorbed about our relationship with God. We have a relationship with God, and we do nothing but focus on ourselves. And Bernard of Carlevaux, he had to put it this way, Graphic way to us, he's an 11th century French abbot, and they say the best things, of course. He said in one of his sermons that focusing on God's goodness must always take precedence over the recollection of our sins. Yes, remember your sins and confess them to the Lord. But he says this, sorrow for our sins is necessary, but it's not, it must not be our endless preoccupation. Where do we dwell? Where do we live? You must dwell in glad remembrance of God's loving kindness for you. He is saying that when you come into God's presence and to worship, don't focus so much on your failings. Confess in the Lord and get them out of the way and get to the good stuff. Don't focus on self. Look to him who has been lifted up for you. The direction of your belief is not in belief itself. It is in the object of your faith who gives you new life. Now Jesus goes on to say some more things to Nicodemus. One of them you might be fairly familiar with. The next verse says, For God so loved the, yeah, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. But we don't hear from Nicodemus again. The last thing we see from Nicodemus is utter confusion. He's just stumbling around going, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. What happens? Jesus 
Jesus has silenced him, and John silences Nicodemus from the narrative. But John is a great writer. You know, like, great books like Harry Potter, where there's a character that shows up really early, 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 early in the story, and you're like, where did that guy go? And then suddenly he shows up later. John, Nicodemus shows up later. In John 19, Jesus is indeed lifted up. He dies on the cross. All of Jesus' disciples run away. They be scared. They are scared. They flee. They go into hiding. They are afraid. But there are two. There are two. Two men who go to the authorities and they ask for Jesus' body. Now, can you remember, can you believe the courage of that? They just put Jesus to death and they go, hey, we want to be associated with the dead guy. Hey, can we have him? You see the courage, and these two men take Jesus' body, and they take 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, and they wrap him, and they put him in a tomb. Don't you love? He's closing the story. Where did Jesus begin? Wrapped, placed in a manger with those who will give him myrrh and aloe. And they anoint the body of Jesus, and they prepare him for burial. Now, this is incredible in its own right. Because no one, no good Jew, touched a dead body. You couldn't, go to, you couldn't go to church. Preparation of the dead for burial was for only the lowliest of servants and for women. But these two men are so humble and so courageous, they put themselves in a place of loneliness without any thought for their position or their power. And they anoint Jesus and they wrap in a cloth and they lay him in a tomb. One of those men is Joseph of Arimathea. The other man is Nicodemus. Can you imagine? Has your life been flipped upside down? Have you encountered not that just the Jesus who says you must be born again, but you have encountered, have you encountered the Jesus who has been lifted up so that you might have new life? Man. I hope you come to encounter him. Whether you've been a Christian for a week or a hundred years, this is what you need. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, restore the religious people in the room, the professional Christians, the retired elders, the post-pastors, the veteran Christians who've been doing this for a very long time. Lord, I pray that you would put, as one person put it in a book, would you put amazing back into grace? Would you remind us once again of just how desperately needy we are? So Lord, if that, if that means that you have to come and do some revealing work of just how desperately we need to be born again, how desperately we need the power of the Holy Spirit, not just to have revived us and brought, regenerated us one time 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but to continue to renew us by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Would you do that? Lord, I pray that those in this room might be willing to ask you to show them their need of you. And so, Lord, where our sin and our sinfulness and our neediness appear, appear great, but, Lord, would your spirit then swoop in really quick and remind us of the good stuff. 
the good stuff of the grace of Jesus. May it appear greater, greater than all of our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.